God bless you. Can I have you open your Bibles to the book of Jude? The book of Jude, sometimes called the uh, introduction to Revelation, uh, if you've ever heard that. I, I haven't, I just made it up. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, as we have said, and somebody asked me, how long will we be in Jude? Uh, not, not too much longer, uh, but the first few verses actually are more geared to us as he's explaining some things than the rest of the book. So, we're taking a little extra time, but we said last time the book of Jude falls into two main sections, uh, a call to action against apostasy, verses 3 to 19. And then a command to Christians to live faithfully, very simply, verses 20 to 23. So under that first main point, a call to action against apostasy, uh, our first sub-point is Christians contend earnestly for the faith against apostates. Again, verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, by way of introduction, uh, much of what follows is meant by Jude to identify these certain men. Of course, that's his term for the apostates, for the false teachers who he said have crept into the church unnoticed, which is a mystery to me, since Jesus warned they were uh, warned as they were coming, uh, Paul warned as they were coming, Peter warned us they were coming, Jude says they're here. They snuck into the church unnoticed, okay? Uh, somebody was asleep at their post, and a lot of times uh, pastors invite these uh, wolves into their churches, thinking that they're great men or women of God. We have to be careful. So uh, that was we looked at that, uh, the first uh, point under our main point, Christians earnestly contend or contend earnestly for the faith against apostates. And then our second uh, sub-point, Christians remember God has judged apostates in the past, verses 5 to 7. So before he actually gets into more of the identification of these apostates, their character traits and so on, he wants us to know, because the, the, the church was probably... Um, a lot of Christians were probably demoralized uh, by apostates who had come in and, and wreaked havoc in the churches, destroying the faith of many, uh, carrying away young converts, and so they were disheartened. And so I think Jude wants to just stop for a second and say, look, their day is coming. God has judged them in the past. He's going to judge them in the future. In fact, he will end this section uh, by telling us that that their judgment is coming. But he wants to remind us that God has already judged these uh, apostates in the past. And verse 5, I want you to rem I want to remind you, though you once knew this. As we talked last week, Jude is uh, talking to those who knew the Jewish scriptures, uh, both Jews and Gentiles, because Gentile converts, that was the only Bible they had was to begin with, was the our Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, that is what it's called today. But um, he said, look, uh, you know, I want you to remember how God in the past has judged apostates. And then he gives two examples. Now, last week I said three. I've changed that. The two examples that he gives are apostate Israelites and then apostate angels. 
Last week I said it was the third category, apostate Gentiles, but really that kind of goes under the category of the second point is he uses the uh, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to prove a point he's making with regard to apostate angels. So I've uh, redone that, uh, just so you know if you're taking notes. But uh, we began looking at this, uh, this first one last time. I want to revisit it because we didn't quite finish, so bear with me if I repeat some of what we looked at last week, but I have to kind of bring everybody up to speed. So he first of all gives us the example of apostate Israelites. In verse 5, he said, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, guys, very important, we mentioned this last time, to fully understand the point Jude is making, we must interpret the passage correctly. So bear with me, way of review. First of all, keep in mind that even though God delivered the entire nation of Israel from Egypt, listen, that didn't mean that each Jew delivered was personally saved. There were three groups of people that came out of Egypt. Those Jews who were genuinely saved, that were strong in their faith and spirit-filled, number one. Number two, those Jews who were genuinely saved, but who were weak in their faith and carnally-minded. And then a third group called the mixed multitude, probably made up of some Gentiles and unbelieving. These were unbelievers, by the way, all right? Uh, made up of uh, Jews and no doubt some Gentiles that left Egypt with Israel. But uh, these are those that we have called religious unbelievers. Now, the church of Jesus Christ is filled with religious unbelievers. Keep that in mind because that's kind of the application, okay? Just because a person comes to a Christian church and calls themselves a Christian doesn't mean that they really are, even if they believe in God, which no doubt they do, all right? These folks in this category of the mixed multitude uh, were those who came out of Egypt. They believed in the God of Israel, but they didn't have saving faith. Again, they were religious unbelievers. I grew up in the Roman Catholic Church, loaded with religious unbelievers. God loved them. Uh, God wants to save them. Uh, I loved the Lord when I was growing up in the church. I, I really did. Um, believed in Him, loved Him, but I didn't know Him. And, and that's the difference, okay? We've talked about that. Now, guys, I believe in verse 5 that Jude primarily has in mind, listen, unbelieving Jews, and again, some Gentiles, who were delivered from Egypt, but who were destroyed by God in the wilderness and uh, by the fiery serpents. There's other examples of how God judged people in the world. We'll talk about that in a second, okay? But I think that Jude probably has in mind uh, the events that we read about last week from Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9. How near the end of the 40-year wandering, again, they started to murmur. The people didn't complain, why has God led us out here to die? We have no food. We hate this manna. There's no water. And God had had enough, and so he sent these fiery serpents. And you remember, we stated this last week. The point that Jude seems to be making is that apostates, listen to me now, that apostates, kind of like the terrors, Jesus warned us about? These apostates often look as genuine as the real thing for a time. Remember Jesus said that, you know, that God has planted the wheat. He likened the true believers to wheat. But the devil sows tares. A tare is a, a, a darnel. It's a weed, but it looks just like the wheat. 
until the fruit comes, the, the grain develops. Then you can always tell the wheat from the tares. But Jesus warned us that the devil would sow within a, a church these tares. Now, we're not to go around trying to find out who they are and rip them out of the church because sometimes carnal Christians uh, could look like tares, but they're not. And often tares are very good at deception and will come across looking like the best Christian you ever saw. Okay, so just, you know, but we need to pray for discernment. But I think the point he's making is that these um, apostates often look as real as the real thing for a while. All right, for a while. I mean, think about Judas, Judas, and how real he looked. So much so that none of the other apostles knew he was not a child of God until the night before the crucifixion in the upper room when Jesus revealed that Judas was not a true believer. He was not a disciple. I mean, he was a disciple, but he wasn't saved, okay? And uh, when, you, when you study the life of Judas, you realize that he was sent out with the others, two by two, to preach the gospel, heal the sick, cast out demons. And he did all of that, apparently, because when he came back, they all, you know, nobody, what well, we, we all were able to do, but Judas, what's wrong with him? No, it, you know, he, he looked just like the other apostles, and God uh, used him, but he was not a true child of God. Again, verse 5, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people, out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who what? Did not believe. Now you have to understand the, um, the, the illustration uh, that, uh, that Jude is he's using this to, to prove a point. It, it kind of reminds me of people who start coming to church, and it appears they have been, listen, delivered from the world, even as all these Jews were delivered from Egypt, the type of the world, all right? But... In this group that came out of Egypt, they weren't all believers. There were unbelievers that acted like they were saved, that they were, uh, but they believed in Jehovah. And they probably did on some level, but not saving faith, right? And liken that to the church, where you have people that have, who start coming to church and uh, they start changing because they're hanging out with Christians, right? And you know, good company, bad company corrupts good habits, right? So if you hang out with good company, it uh, changes you from bad habits. And you get a person who's involved in, in different sins and he's maybe tired of the life he's leading or she's leading and uh, wants a change. And so uh, they know of a, a church nearby and, and, and or maybe somebody invites them. And so they come in and see all of you folks, we'll say, and you're loving them. And you got these wonderful testimonies, how God has set you free from drugs or alcohol or something else. And they, they want that on some level. So they start hanging out with you guys and they start to change. They look like they've been delivered. Maybe they even walk forward uh, when the, uh, the uh, uh, altar call is given. And they pray the prayer to receive Jesus. And they really mean it on one level, but it's all about how, what God's going to do to change me and, and, and bless me now. And, and it's, it's really all about what they're going to get out of it. Maybe they even have a religious experience or a spiritual experience. I've, I've seen that too. And, and so they look like they're totally saved like the rest of us. And we assume that they are, they are saved until time goes by and it becomes obvious something's wrong. Because eventually these folks return to the old life, which is not really an old life, it's the life. They never experienced new life. So it's not like they're going from new life to old life again. They're going back to the only life they've ever known. You know, the New Testament talks about 
these kind of folks. Turn to 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2, let's just pick it up in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having been washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now we have talked about this in the past and let me just paraphrase quickly what uh, Peter is referring to. He is talking about the very people we just touched on. People that come from the world into the church because they want to change. Uh, they, 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 they really do in some way, all right? And they come and they hear the good news and they see you folks and they start to change a little bit, but they don't have a new nature. It's our new nature that keeps us from going back to the world because there's nothing there anymore, right? Peter said, where else are we going to go, Lord? Only you have the words of eternal life. But if you haven't been born again and don't have that new nature, the nature of God in you, you can hang out with Christians for a while, but this is not your natural environment. If you get saved, it is, because now it's everything's brand new. But if you haven't really received Christ into your heart and been born again, well, eventually this kind of wears out. I mean, an unbeliever can only pretend so long that he or she enjoys Bible study and prayer meetings and worship services and so on. Eventually, you know, they want to go back to what they know, like a pig having been washed returns to its mud hole or a dog to its vomit because they have a, that's their nature. They don't have a new nature like, you know, we do. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12. Why don't you turn there, verse 43 to 45. This one throws a lot of people, but we've studied it. We've talked about it. Matthew 12, starting with verse 43. Jesus said, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it shall be with this wicked generation. You have to understand the context. John the Baptist came preaching repentance. A lot of people, a lot of Jews, because they were excited, Messiah is coming. They knew about the forerunner prophecies. They knew Messiah was going to have a forerunner who would come before him and make the, the way straight for the Messiah. And, and so they a lot of them believed John was that guy. And so as John's preaching a message of repentance, they're changing because they want Messiah to come to establish the kingdom and get them away from Rome, basically, right? And of course, they believe Messiah was going to take care of all their needs and, and feed them and keep them healthy, and, and it was going to be wonderful under his administration. But a lot of those same people that started to change at the message of John, and their life began to clean up. In other words, whatever evil spirit was there was driven out, you'd say, all right? But after a while, if you don't fill that void now with a real relationship with Jesus, right? I mean, none of us lives in a vacuum. So if a person starts coming to church, hears the good news, and starts to maybe change and, and all, and as Jesus put it, whatever evil spirit was in them influencing them is driven out, not that they were possessed per se, but just greatly influenced. If they don't quickly fill that void by accepting Christ, after a while, 
not only will that evil spirit come back, it will bring seven others more wicked than himself, and the last state of that person will be worse than the first. That is the danger of you know, getting close to Jesus, hanging out in church for a while, but not really receiving the truth. Now you know the truth. You can't plead ignorance. And so now it's like a willful uh, embrace of darkness. And you wind up much worse than you were to begin with. Look, the lesson is that I believe Jude is driving home, and of course Peter and the Lord Jesus, not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, is going to make it into heaven. A person, listen, might be an apostate not even realize it, and often is. And that's why we are commanded in Scripture. I'll just read these to you. 2 Peter 1.10 Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. Make sure that you're really saved. How do you do that? Well, look for the fruit. Look for that change in heart, attitude. I mean, I certainly wasn't uh, a model Christian right after I got saved, but I knew something, something was going on because uh, already I, my attitude started to change about things, you know? Is there a change taking place, right? But be even more diligent to make your call an election sure, for if you do these things, examine yourself, you will never stumble. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, For if we would judge ourselves right now, we won't have to stand before Him someday and be judged. If we will do some honest inventory of our life to determine, am I really a Christian or am I playing games or whatever? And if you really can't see any fruit and you say, you know, I think I'm playing games here, get on your knees and receive Christ in truth. Because you don't want to stand before Jesus someday and hear Him say, I never knew you depart from me into everlasting fire, right? But guys, as we said last time, many commentators see in Jude verse 5 a reference, at least in part, to carnal believers. Carnal believers. Now, we did talk about this last time. So again, bear with me. But they see in Jude's statement here in verse 5, in part, that he has carnal believers in view. Those that died in the wilderness after having refused to enter the promised land because the ten evil spies brought back the evil report that the uh, inhabitants of the land were giants. There's no way we can go up against them. They put fear in the hearts of the people, stoked their unbelief, and the people cried out against Moses and uh, said, uh, oh, that we had never left Egypt. Let's appoint a leader to take us back. And Joshua and Caleb, the two good spies, said, no, no, no. God has given it to us. Let's go in and take it. He's going to fight for us, right? And, of course, the people listened to the evil spies. And so God said, look, because you listened to the evil spies, uh, this adult generation is going to wander now. One year for every day, the spies spied out the land. Forty days in the land, 40 years in the wilderness until this whole adult generation dies out. And then your kids, who you said I brought out to kill in the wilderness, they'll inherit the promised land. Now, Paul the Apostle, who was a Jewish scholar, of course, uses what happened in the wilderness and those who died there as a lesson, listen, to Christians. That's why I say that uh, some of this uh, is uh, geared toward carnal Christians because he talks to Christians now, Paul does, applying what happened in the wilderness. There was, there was different events where God judged people that died there before they'll... That, generation that finally made it 
came into the promised land, okay? But he wants to point out some of these things that happened to Israel in the wilderness as object lessons for us to learn from their mistakes that we not make the same mistakes ourselves. Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. And I don't have time tonight to develop this passage fully. You can go online and uh, pull down the study from 1 Corinthians 10 because we went into this with a lot greater detail. I'm just going to mention, okay, uh, what Paul talks about. But listen to what he says. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. Now, he uses the word all. He wants us to realize that, you know, everybody had the same benefits. Everybody had the same opportunities. God didn't single out any, okay? They, they all had the same opportunities. Some took it, others did not. I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. Hold on to that word, pleased, okay? For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, you can read Numbers 14, uh, the key verses, verse 29, where it talks about the fiery serpents we mentioned a moment ago, all right? Uh, verse 6, now these things became our examples. All that happened to these people in the wilderness that didn't make it, that um, let their flesh dominate like a lot of carnal Christians do. And what happened to them, don't make the same mistake they made is his point, okay? Paul's point. Verse 6, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil, evil things as they also lusted. You can read Numbers 11, uh, you know, Korah and uh, Dathan and uh, Abiram and how they lusted after Moses' position and God judged them, right? Verse 7, and do not become idolaters as some, of, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That's uh, Exodus 32, uh, the golden calf situation, right? While Moses is getting the law, they're you know, eating and drinking, ri rising up to play and commit adultery and immorality, and you can read that. Verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Read Numbers 25. And how they sinned with the young Moabite gals. Uh, you know, I'm not getting into the whole story, but uh, how they uh, seduced the young Israeli guys. How would you like to see how we worship our gods? And they led them into sexual orgies. That's how they worship these fertility gods and goddesses. And so God killed a whole bunch because of that incident. Verse 9, Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. We just talked about that in Numbers 21. And then finally, verse 10, Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. And you can read Numbers chapter 16. All of these things happened. Listen, here's his application now. All of these things happened to them as examples to us. God allowed these things to happen. I mean, the people wanted to do what they did, and God judged them. But God used it then uh, for the rest of us to learn from their mistakes so that we didn't follow in the same path they walked in, right? Uh, in all. all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our instruction. One pastor said, and I quote, Paul explains 
that the meaning of these events is not limited to their historical value. They have significance for us today. The punishments that came upon the disobedient Israelites not only were an example to their fellow Hebrews, but also to believers in every age since. More than that, they were given for our instruction. The Greek is nuothesia, which is more than an ordinary teaching. It means admonition and carries the connotation of warning, this Greek word does. It is counsel given to persuade a person to change behavior in light of judgment, end quote. Here's what he's saying. Either God's going to get glory from our lives because we willingly want to live for him and obey him and bring him glory, or he's going to get glory from our lives by using us as an object lesson of what not to do because if we harden our heart and want to do our own thing, God says, fine. But then he draws a big circle around our life with a red line through it and goes, don't do what they did. And that's what, if you don't want to be judged like them, then learn from their mistake and don't make the same mistake yourself, is the idea, okay? But getting back, guys, to those who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until they died, this represents how carnal Christians never reach the promised land. God has for them, unless, of course, they repent and start walking by faith, which... We hope they do. But uh, many Christians um, never walk in the Spirit. They, they never uh, grow out of their carnality. And so they never enter into their own personal promised land, life of the Spirit. Uh, as Peter said, they never possess all the great and precious promises that God uh, has given to them. Instead, they wander aimlessly through their Christian life and die in a spiritual wilderness. You know how they're in a spiritual wilderness? It's characterized by murmuring, and complaining and unbelief. That's what characterized Israel in the wilderness and why they didn't enter the promised land, that generation, because they never walked by faith. They, they, they never trusted God. Whenever he made them a promise, they, they didn't accept it. They murmured, they complained, they walked in unbelief. That's what characterized the wilderness for them. And any Christian who is always complaining, never able to trust God, believe his promises, um, they are in their own personal spiritual wilderness. And if they don't repent because they're calling God a liar, I know what you promised me, but I don't believe it. And so eventually God chastens them severely, but they have a tendency just to wander aimlessly in their Christian life without any real sense of purpose or direction until they died there. Not God's will, but if they want to walk in unbelief, okay. And carnality does that. Many Christians, again, walk in that unbelief and they never really enjoy the power, blessing, and fruitfulness of the life of the Spirit that God wants for them. The word pleased, remember I told you this in verse 5? But with most of them God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That word is the same Greek word translated disqualified in 1 Corinthians 9.27. After having preached to others, I feared that I myself might be disqualified. And in that context, Paul is not using it of a loss of salvation. So a lot of Christians, including myself as a young believer, when I read that verse, it terrified me. But I could do something to disqualify myself and lose my salvation. That's not the context. Paul is saying, after I've preached to others how to live for God and how to be faithful and how to enter into, the, into heaven with an abundance of rewards, I'm afraid that I might do something to really fall into the flesh and hinder my rewards. It's the loss of 
heavenly rewards, not salvation. That's in view there. That's how we know it's, he's got carnal Christians in mind, not unbelievers now. Guys, the point Paul is making is that even with all the blessings and advantages that Israel enjoyed, I mean, they had been delivered by God from Egypt. They enjoyed supernatural protection, provision, and guidance from God in the wilderness. Even with all those blessings and how well they started, listen, most of them didn't finish well and wound up dying in the wilderness. When Paul says that with most of them, God was not well pleased, guys, that has to be one of the great understatements in the Bible. Out of two and a half to three million people that left Egypt, probably around a million and a half were adults at the age of accountability, which is 20 and above. So of all those that left Egypt, 20 and above, that died in the wilderness, of all those, only two made it in. Joshua and Caleb. With most of them, God was not well pleased. Wow, that's quite an understatement, okay? Only two out of a million and a half made it, all right? Only two wound up making it into the promised land. And Paul is warning, I believe, all Christians to learn a lesson from this when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, now these things became our examples, that we should not lust after evil things as they did. Listen. The lesson is that we can be saved and enjoy the blessings and protection and provision and leading of God in our lives as Christians, listen, and still stop short of entering into all the fullness that God has for our lives as his people. It's possible to know the Lord, but still live a carnal, unproductive life for him, a spiritual wilderness experience. Now, if that troubles you, that's good. Because some Christians don't care. It's like, I, all I care about is getting into heaven. All right? And as long as I'm going to heaven, I don't care about rewards. Because they want to live for the world. They want the best of both. They want to live for their flesh right now, but when they die, go to heaven. Right? Um, with some of these folks, I'm afraid they've deceived themselves into thinking they're saved. And when they get into heaven to stand before Jesus, they say, I never knew you depart from me into hell. Anybody who thinks that it's okay to live a very carnal life because I'm saved by grace, I don't, all I care about is getting into heaven, I don't care about the rewards, uh, that person, that worries me, okay? It should worry you. If you're not one of those and you're like, wow, I, I don't, I don't want to live my life in such a way that I, I don't inherit everything God wants for me, now and in heaven, good. Then get on your knees and say, Lord, please, work in my life that I could walk by faith more. Now, I'll warn you, when you pray that prayer, because you realize that the promised land is all about walking by faith, God bringing new experiences into your life where you, have, where you are challenged to trust Him and walk by faith, He'll do it. He'll do it. You've got to be ready for it because things are going to come your way now where God's going to put you back up against the wall so you're going to trust Him. Like, like Israel, you know, with the Egyptian army behind them, Red Sea in front of them, hemmed in by mountains. This is a test of their faith, right? And, you know, there are times when God will do that, not because he doesn't love us, because he's answering our prayers, that we want to know him in a deeper way. We want to walk in more faith and power. Okay, good, God says. Let me get, let me get at it. And uh, it can be a little tough at times, right? But the results are awesome. It's awesome, okay? Again, guys, and we'll move on. 
the wilderness represents carnality, complaining, unbelief. Listen, a state of arrested spiritual development. Didn't Paul say in Hebrews, and I believe he did write Hebrews, that by this time you ought to be teachers of the word, but instead you need to be taught the most basic elements of your faith? It's a lot of Christians like that. And they'll throw it back in your face. They'll tell you, you know, when you try to challenge them to go on and grow up a little bit. I've been a Christian for 20 years. Don't tell me. No, you've been a Christian one year 20 times over. You haven't grown. One of the saddest things I've ever experienced as a pastor is knowing somebody in the church. And, of course, you know, they weren't that old in the Lord. And, you know, there's carnality and just some of the flesh really dominating. And they leave the church. They move away. And I don't see them for like 20 years. And eventually I run into them somewhere, start to talk, and I realize they haven't changed a bit. They're still as carnal and selfish and worldly as they were 20 years ago. That's sad. Because by this time they ought to be teaching others instead of having to be taught the most basic elements of their faith. But there are many Christians in our country who live in a spiritual wilderness, in a state of arrested spiritual development their whole Christian life, because they refuse to believe the promises of God for victory, protection, and provision. Because they are carnally minded, they constantly complain about what God hasn't given to them, instead of thanking Him and being grateful for what He has provided. And as such, they, listen, lust more for the things of the world than they desire the presence and knowledge of God. You can always tell where a person's coming. Let me say this to you. If there is a Christian that is absolutely consumed with knowing God, they just want to know Him. And they're in the Word all the time because they want to know Him in a deeper way. And that's why they come to church because they just love to hear His Word and interact with His people because they want to know God in a deeper way. You know what? Those people grow up almost instantly. They're Christians for six months and they're, they are so far beyond some Christians that have been Christians for... 20 years, it's, it's amazing. You can always tell, though, if a person's a carnal Christian or a spiritual Christian, but what dominates their thinking, their language, their, you know, when you talk to them, where they're coming from. And you can always tell, because they're consumed with the things of this life and not with the kingdom of God. Paul is telling us, guys, that Israel made the same mistake. They lusted after the things of Egypt, even after God had delivered them, and it had been so good to them. And once again, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. All you got to do is read the Old Testament and read a history, the history of God's people. It's full of examples of those who let carnality and lust keep them from going all the way in their relationship with God. You got guys like Lot, Samson, King Saul, and in some ways David, I'm sorry to say, who was a tremendous man of God, but at the end of his life, he didn't maintain his close relationship with God and let materialism kind of begin to dominate. And uh, you know the story. Instead of going out to battle where kings were supposed to be fighting the battles of the Lord, he stayed back in his new palace, had a lot of free time, and fell with Bathsheba. And then to cover it, had her husband murdered. A very sad ending to a man that God called a man after my own heart. God, God forgave David, but his life was never the same. It was on an upward trajectory 
until that time, and then it it was downward after that. I mean, he died loving the Lord, but um, his house was in chaos. Um, he didn't know the victories he once knew. It was just a sad way to end. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful. One pastor and author said this, and we'll move on. He said, I quote, the warning through Judah is clear. The people of Israel started out from Egypt well enough. They had many blessings from God along the way, but they did not endure to the end because they did not believe God's promise, uh, God's promise of power and protection. This example gives two lessons. First, it assures us that the certain men, which is what Jude's talking about, causing trouble will certainly be judged, even though they may have started out well in their walk with God. Jude says the certain men might have started out well, but so did the children of Israel, and God afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Secondly, it warns us that we also must follow Jesus to the end, and never be among those who did not believe. The final test of our Christianity is endurance. Some start the race well, but never finish it, end quote. So, you know, it's not how well you start, it's how strong you finish, all right? And so, guys, the first example Jude gives of how God has judged the apostates in the past was the example of apostate Israelites. And number two, he gives the example of apostate angels. Verse 6, And angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example. Here's again that word. As an example, suffering the vengeance of, of eternal fire. Now guys, and we've talked about this, so bear with me. I have to say that this is one of the strangest and most controversial statements in the entire Bible. Jude verses 6 and 7. And as we have said with the previous verse, to properly understand the point Jude is making, we must interpret the passage correctly. To do that, I believe we have to go back to Genesis 6, the passage I believe Jude had in mind when he made this statement. So turn to Genesis 6, and let me just say again, if you want a full treatise on Genesis 6, verses 1 to 12, go online, access the teaching, because I, I don't have time to get into that whole thing again. But we went into that in greater detail than we'll touch on right now. If you've heard me teach this, again, please be patient. So Genesis 6, let's just read verses 1 and 2. And I believe this is what Jude had in mind. The first few verses of this chapter when he said this, But now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now I believe sons of God is a reference to angels. Angels. And daughters of men is a reference to human women. I hold to this view because the term sons of God in the Old Testament always refers to angels. Always. However, this in and of itself wouldn't be enough to convince me that Genesis 6 verses 1 to 4 is talking about fallen angels coming down to the earth to cohabitate with human women. 
What really drives this view home to me is that this incident is mentioned not once, not twice, but three times in the New Testament. Jude mentions it once in the verses we just read, and then Peter mentions it twice, one in each of his epistles. And the point Jude is making is that fallen angels left heaven. Now, the NASB uh, translates it, left their own domain, their proper abode, and came to the earth to commit sexual immorality by going after strange flesh. He uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of what he's referring to. Just like homosexual sex is unnatural, so is sex between fallen angels and human women. It's outside of God's design. It's a perversion. Those that disagree with this interpretation, and they are many, okay, claim that angels are spirit beings and therefore sexless, sexless which means they are incapable of having sex with women, let alone producing children with them. Well, we know that angels can take human form, right? And did so many times in the Old Testament. In fact, in Genesis 18, the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance uh, came to Abraham with two angels. The two angels went on to Sodom and Gomorrah to wipe it out, and the Lord Jesus stayed back, and Abraham uh, interceded for Sodom, because that's where Lot and his family lived, and so on. You can read about that in Genesis 18. And then we have that cryptic verse in Hebrews 13 too, where he basically says, you know, make sure that you treat strangers with hospitality. You never know when you're entertaining angels unaware. Wow. So obviously angels can take human form, all right? To say that angels are incapable of having sex with women is something the Bible never says and history refutes. There have been many documented accounts of women in the occult or in pagan religions who have uh, written about having sex with demons or fallen angels. Uh, some of them have gotten saved and they've, they've gone on to explain that that in fact is what happened. And they offered themselves to these pagan deities and we know that were demons or fallen angels, and uh, they uh, had sex with these women. Now, someone would say at this point, are you telling me that, okay, they had sex and they had children with these women? These fallen angels had sex and then children with these women? Is that what you're saying? That's not what I'm saying. It's what the Bible's saying. Genesis 6, verse 4, there were giants in the earth that were the result of this union. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. In the book of Enoch, which is not inspired scripture, I, I understand that, but may still contain some accurate historical information, we read, I'm quoting, And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those days, were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. They took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one, and they began to go into them and to defile themselves with these earthly women. And they taught them charms and enchantments, and they became pregnant, and they bore great giants." And there arose much godlessness, and they committed fornication, and they were led astray and became corrupt, 
in all their ways, end quote. Now, is that just repeating Genesis or is it relating something that was going on that the writer here has seen firsthand? Maybe both. And once again, guys, those who don't believe Genesis 6 is talking about fallen angels getting married and two and having sex with human women point to what Jesus said in Matthew 22, verse 30, where Jesus said, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels, the angels of God in heaven. And so people that reject what I've just told you, that angels couldn't possibly procreate with women, earthly women, they will point to this and say, well, Jesus right here said angels were sexless, uh, Matthew 22, 30. And he also said they never marry. So, you know, your interpretation can't be right. But he was speaking about faithful angels. He was speaking about the faithful angels of God in heaven, not the rebellious ones. Henry Morris, tremendous man of God, in writing a commentary on Genesis, he said, when Jesus said that the angels in heaven do not marry, this does not necessarily mean that those who have been cast out of heaven were incapable of doing so, end quote. It is significant that when angels are referred to in the Bible, it's always with a masculine pronoun, he. And they're always described as men. That's why they're called the sons of God. Back in Genesis 6, in verse 1, it says again, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Verse 4, And there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Again, this is familiar territory to many of you. The word giants in verse 4 is the Hebrew word Nephilim, and is a word that literally means mighty or fallen ones, probably both. I personally believe that these were half-human, half-demon hybrid creatures. Again, verse 4 there were giants in the, on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were old men of renown. We are told in Scripture that these giants were on the earth before and after the flood. Before and after the flood. These would include Goliath and his brothers. Goliath was what? Nine and a half feet tall? Interesting thing about it, it says in one place in the Old Testament that Goliath and his brothers each had six fingers on each hand, six toes on each foot. Obviously, not normal guys, all right? But they're not the only group we read about in the Old Testament of giants. There were whole races of these giants, like the Anakim, the uh, Imim, the Zamzuzim. You can read about these Deuteronomy chapter 1, chapter 2. It says of King Og, I believe, of Bashan, that um, his bed was 13 feet long, 6 feet wide. It's a big boy, okay? Um, you realize when the 10 spies brought back the evil report that there's giants in the they're like grasshoppers in their sight. When you first read it, you're, you're prone to think they're speaking you know, hyperbolically, that was hyperbole. Uh, no, they were speaking literally. That's why they were so terrified. 
How in the world are we going to go up against these people? They're our literal giants. Of course, God was much bigger, much stronger. But guys, this, is, this, I believe, is one of the reasons God told Joshua and the children of Israel to... And all these groups were in the land of Canaan, that I just mentioned, okay? And this is why I believe that uh, the reason that God told Joshua and the children of Israel to utterly wipe out the people living in Canaan was because the people of the land had been corrupted with demon seed, at least a large portion of them. And guys, that is exactly what I believe is going on in Genesis 6 on a worldwide scale. I believe Satan and his angels come down to the earth to try to commingle. Now remember, Genesis 3.15, there's going to come a deliverer through the seed of the woman. The woman doesn't have seed. The man has the seed. The first glimpse of the virgin birth. I'm going to send a deliverer who will be virgin born and he is going to at one point crush the serpent's head destroy satan's authority because satan now usurped authority over the earth from adam and eve when they disobeyed god and obeyed the devil satan was right there he heard the promise heard the prophecy right so i believe at that point he started to launch an attack that would thwart god's plan and part of it in genesis 6 at least was that he had his angels come down. These are fallen angels, of course. Come down to the earth to try to commingle and corrupt the human race with demon seed so that this deliverer, Messiah Jesus, could never have been born. Think about it. How could a Messiah redeem us from the grip of the devil who is himself half demon, a half human hybrid? Couldn't be. Couldn't be. And you know what? Satan was... Almost successful. Almost successful. We read in verse 7 of Genesis 6. So the Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. When it says that Noah was a just man, the Hebrew is righteous. And how was a person declared righteous? By their faith. He was a man of faith. He loved God. He walked with God. The word perfect there, uh, Noah was perfect in his generations, uh, is a Hebrew word that could be translated uncontaminated. But it also says in verse 9 that Noah was perfect in his generation. His generations, I should say. That's a Hebrew word that could be translated genealogy. In his pedigree, he was still, his family line could have been the only family, probably was on the face of the earth, that had not been in some way contaminated with demon seed. The whole earth was corrupted, we read, right? And not just the people, but who else? What else? The animals, right? I don't have time to get into that. Go listen to the study from Genesis 6. But guys, listen. Again, no one in his family may have been the only ones left on the earth still pure and uncontaminated by demonic inbreeding, which would explain the flood. Now, I know at this point, someone would say, do you really expect us to believe that fallen angels came down to the earth to contaminate the human race with demon seed to keep Messiah from being born? Is, is that what you're saying? Is that what you're telling us? And that was why God sent the flood? 
to purge the earth of demon half-breeds? I mean, that's ridiculous. Maybe. I know it's a little out there, but I think I'm on solid scriptural ground. But maybe, maybe I'm out to lunch with this. But if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, why didn't God send revival and a great awakening to the earth instead of wiping out all living things, both man and animals? See, to me, that implies something so severe. I mean, we're just talking about a, a time in human history where evil was so prevalent and people were so carnal and violent. There have been times like that in the past of human history. God revives the church and he does a great awakening in that area. Uh, it's amazing. The Jesus movement that we're all really connected to because we're Calvary Chapel folks. That generation of young people was, was turning on, tuning out. Don't trust anybody over 30. I mean, they were a lost generation. Did God wipe them out with a flood? Or, you know, he could have sent an earthquake to California, which most of it was going on there, and, and wiped them all out. I'm not going to say it. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. Um, no, he sent... A revival and a great awakening, a Jesus movement. Why didn't he do that in Noah's day? Why did he have to go through all the trouble? Those people say, well, it was a local thing. If it was a localized thing, the flood, God wouldn't have told Noah to build an ark for 120 years, just move out of the area. Now, there's, there was something going on there. And I believe it was a... Now, let's end with the three places in the new testament that talk about this because again if i just had genesis 6 to go by i probably wouldn't believe what i just taught you guys if it wasn't for the corroboration of the three places in the new testament where peter and jude actually mentioned this event and and you tell me if it doesn't sound exactly like what we just presented turn to first peter 3 and let's start with verse 18 i gotta hurry we're out of time so for Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also, now listen, he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine longsuffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Now listen, he talks about the time of Noah, right? And he talks about something that happened at that time that God judged spirits for. He calls them spirits. And Jesus went down to where the spirits were being held captive because of what they did. And he preached to these spirits in prison. And a lot of people interpret that to mean, what that means is that Jesus is going to give people in Hades a second chance. And he's going to go down there, you know, or, or at one point, or you know, he did, and, gave, and he's going to preach the gospel and, and give these folks a second chance to get saved. That is wishful thinking. It's not biblical truth. First of all, the word he uses for preach is not euangelizomai, the word we get a word evangelize from, preach the gospel. It's the Greek word keruso, which simply means to proclaim something like a victory. The word spirit in the Greek is never used of souls, the souls of people. Always angels, angelic beings. 
And I believe what Peter is saying is that all these fallen angels that tried to contaminate the human race with demon seed to keep Messiah from coming, well, God thwarted that plan. Messiah came. He redeemed us. And then he went before he ascended back to heaven, Ephesians 4. He went down into Hades and he proclaimed his victory before he released the captives, Moses, David, Daniel, and led them up to heaven. And now as a believer, to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. No more Abraham's bosom. Paradise, but prison, because Jesus hasn't come to pay for our sins yet. No, no, no. He's come. But listen, to, Peter mentions this, okay? 2 Peter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, I believe he's got in mind those angels in Genesis 6, but cast them down to hell, not the best translation, the Greek is Tartarus, the lowest part of Hades, it's a special compartment, that God has got these fallen angels chained in who were apparently so vicious, so wicked, that God has chained them in Tartarus, delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Does that mean their judgment? Or is it talking about how in Revelation at one point angels are released from this bottomless pit and they go out into the world in one hour kill a quarter of the world's population? Because they're that vicious. Verse 5, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved till he connects these angels again to Noah. Something they did, they sinned during the time of Noah. He said, But saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So again, he's connecting angels with Noah and how that these angels sinned and so on. And then, of course, Jude, once again, verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, heaven, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. Well, if you're a human being, strange flesh would be uh, homosexual flesh and, and sex. You're an angel. What's strange flesh to you? Human flesh. Given over themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So these angels will be judged. All right? Listen, guys, we're done. The point that Jude is making with regard to apostates is that they can be found in heaven. They can be found in earth. They can have a special position given to them by God, whether we're talking about the chosen people of Israel, angels in heaven who, who stand before God and see Him face to face, or Judas, chosen to be one of Jesus' apostles, or even uh, any one of a number of shepherds in America or around the world who are pastors of God's flock. Don't let these special relationships with God fool you. They don't bring a guarantee that a person, or even an angel, is really someone who belongs to God just because they have that position, okay? The real test is continuing in the faith. Remember I said, like tares, they look as real as the real thing for a while. Somebody pointed out to me, I love it. He said he went online and Googled, you know, uh, wheat and tares. And pictures came up. One of them was tares, Darnell, next to the wheat, when they were young, 
new, kind of, you know, and they look exactly the same. But then as the both ripened, the grain developed on the wheat. The fruit was on the wheat, right? And you know what the fruit did? It caused the wheat stock to bend over, to bow down. That's what it means when you're saved. And you know your wheat because you want to bow down to the Lord and worship Him. Or the Darnell unbelievers, they're standing erect. Nobody's going to get them to bow. They're their own person, their own God, and so on. Just because a person... Guys, I have met over the course of 40 years of ministry a lot of people that I believe were Christians. And then as time has gone on and some of the things that they have done in their lives and you know how they had eventually walked away, I look back and realize they were apostates. They looked good. But after a while, it became obvious something was wrong. They did not have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Judas is basically saying that. He's telling us, don't be deceived. Don't even deceive yourself. Because as Jesus said, many will come to me on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy and cast out demons and do many wonders in your name? He said, I will not, I, I'm going to tell them, depart from me, I never knew you. They're shocked. They are self-deceived. They think they're going to heaven. Shocked that they won't be going to heaven. I think Jude in part is saying, look, uh, yeah, apostates are going to get judgment someday. Make sure you're not one of them. Because a lot of times a person can be an apostate and not even realize it. Not even realize it. The real test, and we're done, is continuing in the faith and demonstrating faithfulness to God throughout the course of their life. We can backslide, but we're not talking about walking away from the faith and renouncing everything and never to return. I'll give you two scriptures. We'll close. 1 John 2.19 They went out from us, but they were not really one of us. For if they had been of us, they would have re remained or continued with us. But they went out, they left our group, they walked away from Christianity. That they might be made manifest that none of them were genuine Christians. Hebrews 3.14 And we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Again, not how well you start, it's how strong you finish. And... Um, all the way through the New Testament, especially in John's writings. You'll know the true from the false because the true abide, which means they continue, they remain. Apostates, they look good for a while, but then they eventually walk away. So having that in mind, they will continue now because obviously as, as Jude has kind of um, told us about how God has judged apostates, uh, and some of which, kind of shocking, you would never think. Judas and angels and those that came out of Eden. You know, be careful. They're out there. Make sure you're not one of them. And then now he goes on to give more of the characteristics, and we'll talk about that uh, not next week. We take a week off for the week of fasting and prayer, but the following week, and things should go quicker now And uh, as we uh, move toward our study in Revelation. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have saved us. And if anybody in this room or anybody listening to my voice online or on the radio, uh, Lord, uh, is not sure, well, give them grace to really examine themselves honestly so that they can make sure, they can truly give their heart to you before they die and stand before you and hear you say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. 
We don't want to see anybody stand before you, Lord, and hear that. So we ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.